previously on Truth and Justice. We spotted, or I did, I know, I mean, this lady out in her housecoat walking her dog. And that was it. I mean, for, and for a couple days, he didn't show up. And one morning, or one maybe mid-afternoon, something like that, he uh, came walking down the street in front of Spruce uh-huh. on a sidewalk and he walked at that morning he was wearing one of my shirts it was like an army shirt was that that morning because I think a trial he said that morning he came back no he didn't come back that morning do you, do you remember like what color clothes she was wearing how big the dog was there's a little dog the only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. It's been a busy week, but I'm glad to be back home in Michigan. As you all know, I was in Texas last week. And that's what today's episode is going to be about. I'm going to walk you through my trip to Texas, all the way from my first night in Dallas, through the law school graduation, and some interviews with some new witnesses. This trip was really short, really busy, and really productive. So let's get right into it. This trip was a little different than most. In most cases, I'm either traveling to Texas alone, or I have Mike with me. But for this particular visit, I actually had my wife, Becky, along for the ride. So let me first explain to you how this came to be. So I've been planning a trip back down to Texas because I wanted to touch base with Troy Eldridge again. And since I have no phone number for him, the only way for me to speak to him is to go directly to his house. As of a few weeks ago, I hadn't quite nailed down when I was going to make my next trip. When about that time, I was on a conference call with Allison's students at the Texas Tech University School of Law in the Innocence Clinic and the students all told me that they were graduating on May 20th and they would love it if I could make it. This seemed like a good enough reason as any to go ahead and book my trip back down to Texas on the weekend of May 20th. And since Becky hasn't had a chance to meet the law students or Allison Clayton, she decided to tag along with me for the ride. So last Friday, Becky and I boarded a plane and headed down to Dallas. We arrived into town late that evening, and since we got in kind of late, we decided to make kind of a date night out of that first evening. Becky's never been to Texas, so I wanted to give her the true Texas experience. So, of course, we went out for sushi that night. We had a nice dinner, we stopped at a brewery, and walked the streets at the Shops for Legacy up in Plano, Texas. It was an early bedtime because we had to get up super early on Saturday morning, and this is because we realized that just because Lubbock and Plano were in the same state, Texas is a big damn place, and we had a five and a half hour drive to get to the law school graduation. As we drove across Highway 114, I was updating my Snapchat story with snaps like these. Texas is not exciting. 
We did run into a little bit of trouble when there was about a two-hour stretch where there wasn't a single gas station, roadside stand, nothing. Let's just say that bathroom breaks became kind of a problem. But nonetheless, we eventually made it into Lubbock early that afternoon. We were able to hook up with Allison Clayton and go out for a quick dinner before the graduation, and she gave us a short tour of the law school and the Innocence Clinic. Then it was on to the hooding ceremony. For those of you that don't know, when a student graduates law school, they're actually a doctor. I wasn't aware of that. But a law degree is a doctor of jurisprudence degree. And for their graduation ceremony, they have a professor put a hood over them, indicating that they're now lawyers. So Becky and I got to watch as Ashley, Rudy, and Mercedes were all hooded as new lawyers. And I'll play real quick the audio from that, from my Snap story. Mercedes clearly had the biggest and most boisterous crowd at the ceremony. But congratulations for the last time to all of you, Mercedes, Ashley, and Rudy, for graduating law school. And thank you from the bottom of my heart, Ed's heart, and Jesse's heart for working tirelessly on both of their cases for the last year. After the ceremony, Becky and I got to go out to dinner with Allison, one of our transcriptionists, Desiree Dunn, and her husband Charles, along with Ashley and her mother and Rudy and his whole family. It was a nice night. We had a couple of drinks, some great food, and then it was another early night to bed for Becky and I because we had another five-and-a-half-hour ride the next morning. And once we got boots on the ground back in Dallas, things got very real very quickly for Jesse's case. And we'll talk about that right after the break. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Harry's Razors. Father's Day is just around the corner, and you know dads, like me, are impossible to shop for. Becky complains at every holiday that she has a really hard time finding something that feels special that I'll actually use. Well, fortunately, our friends at Harry's Razors have solved this problem with a special offer that you're going to love and dad will too. They're going to give you $5 off of their shave sets, including a limited edition Father's Day set at harrys.com justice. Now listen up, because I'm going to explain this to you. I've already got mine, and I've already bought a few to give away as Father's Day gifts, and these kits are great. So first of all, let me tell you again why I love Harry's razors so much. I've been using Harry's for months now. They're the best razors, the smoothest shave I have ever used in my entire life. I use all of their products. Their foaming shave gel is awesome. Their post-shave balm is incredible. And like I said, their razor blades are absolutely the best razors I've ever used, and they're half the price of the ones that I would usually buy at the drugstore. So besides already loving Harry's, Harry's, as a sponsor, sent me one of these Father's Day gifts. It comes in a really nice-looking gray box. It doesn't even need to be wrapped. And inside, it comes with a new storm gray razor handle, foaming shave gel, three replacement blades, and a travel cover. And it also comes with this chrome razor stand, which is my favorite part. So it's this little cube that sits on your counter that your razors will fit right into. So they're not in your toothbrush holder. They're not laying on the counter. They just stand upright. So it's a really cool new addition to my Harry's razor set. So I immediately ordered three more of these for my dad, my father-in-law, and my brother. Because this is the gift that just keeps on giving. Because once someone shaves with Harry's, they're never going to want to shave with anything else. And that's because Harry's is a great shave at a fair price. Their razors consist of five German-crafted blades, flex hinge, and a lubricating strip. 
They have a 100% quality guarantee with full refund if you're not happy. They're $2 a blade or less, which is half the price of the leading five-blade razor brand. Their shave sets start at just $15, and not to mention that we're giving you that extra $5 off when you go to harrys.com justice. And with that, you get a razor handle, you get their moisturizing shave gel, you get three of Harry's five-blade precision-engineered razors, and don't forget, right now, you get Harry's limited edition Father's Day shave set, and it comes with that storm gray razor handle and that really cool chrome razor stand. It also still comes with the foaming shave gel, three replacement blades, and a travel cover. And again, it comes in a sleek, giftable box with the option to add custom engraving and a personalized card for free. So you've got nothing to lose to check out Harry's. Like I always say, you're going to buy razors anyway, so why not check out Harry's? And I promise you, I personally endorse that you will get the best shave you've ever had with Harry's. So right now, go to harrys.com slash justice to redeem a special offer that's just for fans of this show. Harry's will give you $5 off one of their shave sets. This is for a limited time only, so act now. That's harrys.com slash justice to get $5 off and to help support Truth and Justice. Make sure you get those orders in before Father's Day, because these Father's Day sets make a great gift. Harrys.com slash justice. Something very important has happened in the last week in Jesse's case. I can't tell you about all of it right now, but I can tell you that it's big, and you'll hear a little bit more about it at the end of the show. But what I'll tell you right now is that during my five-and-a-half-hour trip back to Dallas last Sunday, I received a text message from a witness that I've been communicating with for about a week. This witness asked if I'd be willing to meet them at the On the Border restaurant in Mesquite, Texas, just an hour and a half from when I got this message. I punched up the cruise control a couple of miles per hour and made sure that I made it back to Dallas in time. So that Sunday evening, Becky got to go off to dinner with some friends, and I hooked up with our web guy, Chris Brinkley, and we went to that On the Border and interviewed this new witness. Our conversation went on for over an hour and a half. And unfortunately, that's all I can tell you about it for right now. But I promise you'll get the full story next week. After the interview, I met back up with Becky and some friends, John and Crystal. We had a late night dinner and hit the sack. Our flight back home was on Tuesday. So the next day, Monday, was my only full day to get any work done. I had a hard time sleeping after the events of the night before, but I was up bright and early the next morning and hooked up with Chris Brinkley again. And on that morning, our first order of business was to visit Grady Spruce High School. The first thing that we did when we got to the neighborhood was take another trip around the crime scene. See, we're getting closer now to what the crime scene would have looked like back when Kia was murdered. All of my other trips were in the wintertime when the foliage wasn't in full bloom. And for those of you that are interested, I made about a 12-minute Periscope video while I was there. I drove around the crime scene and showed everyone exactly where that quiet stretch of woods is on Grady Lane, where Keal's body was found, where Mr. Stanberry's house was, where Jesse's apartment was. That video is still up on my Periscope, which I believe is at Serial Dynasty still. So if you haven't seen it, go on to Periscope, make an account, it's free, it's quick, it's easy. And check out that video. It'll give you a much better grip of what went on at that crime scene and what it looked like. So after we did that, Chris and I decided to just go for it. We didn't expect to get very far into the school, but we thought we should at least try. I really wanted to look through some old yearbooks. 
My thought was, if I can get a list of names of everyone that went to Spruce High School, both in the spring and the fall of 1991, that that would give me a good list of witnesses to start talking to, because I still believe that someone knows something. To be honest, I was actually shocked. When we walked into the school, they had a security outpost right there at the front door. They asked us who we were. We told them. We signed in. And they said, the principal's office is that way. And we were in. Then we walked down to the principal's office, and we asked the gentleman in the office if we might be able to get a hold of some old yearbooks. The man we spoke to at the office was more than happy to help us. He looked around in the back room and then made a call to the librarian. While he was on the phone, I noticed that there was a photo up of the graduating class of 2017. The demographics are really astonishing, considering that back in 1990 and 1991, Spruce High School was made up of mostly Caucasians, with African Americans and Hispanics still being in the minority. It looked to me in this picture like there were about 300 kids that were graduating this year. And of that 300, I saw only one white person in that entire photo. Just as a quick estimate, I would say Grady Spruce High School is made up of about 90% Hispanic, about 9% African-American, and about 1% white. Now, none of this is really relevant to the case. I just found it interesting and thought I would share it with you. But after I was done looking at the picture, I was directed to go up to the library and talk to a woman named Barbara. I did just that, and when I got into the library, Barbara was more than happy to help us. She had a 1991 yearbook there waiting for me to look at. She also grabbed me a 1992 and a 1990 yearbook, and I was thumbing through them. Barbara was telling me some stories about Pleasant Grove. She wasn't around the time of Kiao's murder and didn't know anything about it other than hearing rumors of years ago a Vietnamese woman from the kitchen was murdered on the grounds. But that's really all she knew about it. She started the school in 1999, eight years after the murder. But she said she was really familiar with the area. And she was telling me that around that time, and even still today, people were known to carry sticks and knives and things with them when they walked around the grounds of Spruce High School, not because they were worried about getting beat up or mugged, but because there were stray dogs all over the place. And as soon as she said that, I remembered my first trip to the Grove with Mike. As we approached the area of Apache and Grady Lane, there were two stray dogs just laying around the street. Apparently, that's a thing in Pleasant Grove. There's always been lots of stray dogs there. As I continued to thumb through the yearbooks, we started to gather a bit of a crowd. A couple of other workers came into the library and were asking about what we were doing. They were both newer and didn't know anything about the murder, but they were interested in the story. These two workers happened to work the summer school program. I asked them if the schedule for summer school back in 1991 would be the same as it is today, and of course they weren't sure. But they did confirm that as of right now, summer school runs through the last week of July and only runs Monday through Thursday. I then asked the two summer school teachers if they would happen to have attendance records from summer school all the way back from 1991. They immediately said no, they don't, which is about what I expected. But I was surprised to hear that their records should still exist. They said that we should be able to get a hold of those records downtown at the ISD. They said that they had pulled transcripts and records from the ISD from the early 90s before, and they should be there. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to give them to us, but it's good to know that they likely still exist. They did also answer a few more questions about summer school for me. They said that their summer school is indeed a credit recovery. They said they don't typically have students in there trying to get ahead. It's usually people that are already behind. And they also said that their summer school consisted of students from all around the area. There wasn't a summer school program at every school. So, for example... If someone was going to Samuel High School, 
and they needed to take summer classes, they would take those classes at Grady Spruce. Barbara and the rest of the library staff were more than helpful. In fact, Barbara even put in her code into the copy machine and let us make copies of one of the yearbooks. I didn't want to abuse the privilege, so I only made copies of the graduating class and took photos with my phone of the rest of the pages. We did actually find a new photo of Kiao that we didn't previously have. We'll get that posted on the website this week. But we do now have a long list of potential witnesses. So these next few weeks are going to be busy for us. As we were ending our conversation, Barbara suggested we talk to Coach Richardson. She said that he was actually going to high school at Grady Spruce about that time. So down to the gym we went, we found Coach Richardson's assistant, who got the coach on the phone, only to tell us that he actually graduated in 1989 and didn't know anything about this. But he told us that we should talk to a woman named Miss Cortez. She worked in one of the trailer buildings on the north end of the property, some kind of distance learning center. He said he would call her and let her know we were coming, and told us to head on up there and talk to her, because she was around in 1991. I thanked the coach for his help, Chris and I checked out, walked out the front door, and made our way back to the trailers at the back of the school grounds, on Grady Lane, directly across the street from Kenneth and Kiao's home. The building had a bit of a library feel to it. The door entered into the middle of the building. I could see a classroom on the left with only a few students inside, and another classroom occupied by only one student on the right. The building was silent when we walked in. This is the front door? Seems unlikely. It only took about a minute to realize that I was inadvertently dictating the volume of everyone's voices. We were all whispering for no apparent reason. That's why in the next few clips you'll hear a lot of my breathing and some strange transitional noises. That would be Mike trying to correct the voices to understandable levels. Miss Cortez began working at Spruce High School in August of 1992. That's just a month after Kiao's murder. She doesn't know very much about the case. She was a brand new teacher, so she wasn't in the inner circles of teacher gossip just yet. But she does remember Kenneth, because Kenneth's story continued long after Kiao's passing. So were you working here at the time? I got here in 92. So you started right after that happened? But I remember because for years, her husband would walk would walk the building, I mean, up until the last few years ago. He was an old, decrepit man, a long, unkept beard with a walking thing. And he would he would walk, because I think her body was found in the woods back there. On September, yeah. On the... And so, so he would walk for years and years and years. He would walk the premises. And I don't know if he died in the last couple of years. He would walk every day. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Because, of course, once we started, he was, he's gone. So we haven't been able to obviously talk to him, yeah. just his son. So he just continued to mm-hmm. walk and walk yeah. and walk. Uh, he just, I always felt so bad for him. 
for him. Like I said, he, you'd see his years, his beard was growing. He was kind of decrepit. Ms. Cortez went on to describe watching Kenneth Gove age into what she described as a decrepit old man. She said that even as the years tore down Kenneth's body, he never stopped making that walk. Every day. Mrs. Cortez's perspective on Kenneth matches up perfectly with what everyone else has told me about the man. Let me quickly read you an email that I received from a woman named Phyllis Cochran. Phyllis used to work with Kiao in the cafeteria. I emailed back and forth with her months ago while trying to establish some victimology. This is what Phyllis had to say. Kia was a very friendly person, and too trusting. She would walk around the school every day by herself. All the ladies in the kitchen would tell her not to go by herself, but she was always worried about her health. She ate healthy food and was in good shape. She never wore jewelry when she walked. She was a hard worker, and if she made friends with you, it was a lifetime friendship. She and I worked together, and if one got through before the other, then the other would help the other out. She and I worked together, and she cried when I had to quit. She would share anything she had if you needed it. I've never had another friend like her. Some of us ladies talked about maybe she came upon a drug deal. There was a lot of that going around there about then. Her family was the world to her, especially her husband. She always worried about his health. I went to her house after she died, and her husband had like a small shrine fixed of her. She loved to laugh and have a good time. She had nothing that anyone would kill her for. It was a ruthless and senseless death of a wonderful person. They didn't have any financial problems, and they were a happy couple. They both worked hard and loved life. I don't think Ken ever got over losing her. I also recently spoke with another co-worker of Kiao's, and she told me the same thing. That Kenneth never got over the loss of his wife. She was his world. Kenneth Gove made a shrine to his wife inside of his home. He never left. He never remarried. And I'm told that until the day that he died, Kenneth Gove retraced his wife's final footsteps. Every single morning. Even as an elderly man, armed with a walking stick and an unkempt beard, Kenneth met his love on that walking path. Every morning. Miss Cortez was by far the most helpful person that I spoke with on that Monday. We hung out in her classroom chatting for about 15 minutes. At one point, she tried to get a retired teacher on the phone for us. I don't know why I didn't think of her. She was here when I was here, was here for like 30 years. And she knows everything. Miss Cortez was calling a woman named Judy Porter. Judy didn't answer, and it was time for me to head to my next meeting. I would have loved to have been able to sit and talk with Miss Cortez all day. But with only one full day to work, it was time to make haste. As Chris and I were walking away, Miss Cortez came running after us. She managed to get Judy on the phone, but unfortunately, Judy didn't remember the incident, although she did have some valuable information for us. Judy had the contact information for two witnesses that I had been searching for for months. The cafeteria supervisor, Constance Jackson, and the school security guard, who was on the scene when Kiao's body was discovered, Randy Poteet. I haven't spoken to Poteet yet, but Miss Cortez tells me that he's been made aware of what we're doing and he's expecting my call. 
All things considered, my trip to Grady Spruce High School was very productive. I now have contact information for two people who should be able to fill in many of the gaps in this story, and I have a list of names of everyone who was attending Spruce High in 91 and 92. Over the next several weeks, I'll be reaching out to each and every one of these students. And hopefully, someone knows something. In the meantime, it was already past noon, and I had someone very important left to talk to. Troy Eldridge. Right after the break. After leaving the school, Chris and I set course for Ferris, Texas, a small town south of Dallas. It was time to have a follow-up conversation with Mr. Troy Eldridge. The purpose for the visit was to let Troy know that things are not as they had seemed during the investigation. Watts, as you know, had lied to him and manipulated him. And of course, I also needed to play Jesse's message to Troy, as I had promised. As we approached Carol and Troy's trailer, we couldn't help but notice that the grounds were in even worse shape than they were a few months ago when we first visited. What are you doing? I just want to get a look. This is their trailer right here. It's completely unkempt. Look at that. Like the backyard, it hasn't been mowed in all year. You can tell it's like waist yeah. high grass. Just an absolute shithole. Definitely hasn't been loaded all at the spring. Mm-hmm. Again, look, just like no evidence of anybody being in or out of here. Ready? Good. Let's do it. Chris and I gathered our equipment. I made sure to arm myself with the relevant sections of the trial transcripts. I highlighted the areas where Watts admits that he had never spoken to Jesse before he was arrested, as well as the forensic examiner's testimony stating that neither Troy or Jesse's DNA was found on the scene. As we approached the house, we immediately lost the element of surprise when my too-fancy-for-me rental car honked at us. Spiders, fuck. A nice start to the interview. A face full of spider web. It wasn't three seconds after I knocked on the door before I was greeted by a shirtless Troy Eldridge. He opened the door in what appeared to be some kind of boxer brief underpants and nothing else. Troy's eyes are kind of squinty by nature, but today he seemed to be squinting a little more than usual. Troy stood in the doorway loud and proud. His chest tattooed, he had his feet crossed, and he leaned to the right with his forearm pressed against the door jamb just over his head. He didn't say a word. He just took a drag from his cigarette with his left hand as I greeted him. Troy! What? Do you remember me? Yeah. Uh, I wonder if I could have a couple more minutes of your time if we can chat with you again. I've got some more information to give you. About what? About Jesse's case. I think it's fair to say that Troy was not happy to see me. I actually heard him swearing from inside the trailer as I was approaching the door. I think it is extremely likely at this point that he is in fact listening to the podcast. I told him that I had some things to share with him about the case, and in between Carol's hollers from the back room, Troy tells me that he's not interested. About Jesse's case? I don't. Hold on. I don't want to talk about it. Okay. Well, can I, just for a minute, if I can just tell you. Troy heard me out for about 30 seconds. I confronted him with Shauna's statement to Watts, and then I was about to let him know that Watts never spoke with Jesse, 
but he never gave me the chance. More importantly, what I wanted to talk about with you is as we look through the case, I, I at least wanted you to know that Don Watts, the detective, was... Okay, what, what, what do I have to do with all this? Well, it was your testimony that put Jesse away. Right. And Jesse didn't do it. Okay. So that, that's where you come in. It, Honestly, I was amazed that Troy had the stones to look me in the eyes and ask, what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with him. Then there's also his casual acknowledgement that Jesse is innocent. Just listen again here. Well, it was your testimony that put Jesse away. Right. And Jesse didn't do it. Okay. And Jesse didn't do it. Okay. During our short conversation, Troy made two things very clear. Number one, he seems to be done even arguing the fact that he lied and that he sent his brother away for life. And number two, he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. For years, everybody has thought that this had to do with Sean. Yeah, and they asked me about that, and I was sleeping with two other women at the time, so Mm -hmm. I had no reason. Well, I don't think that's it at all, and that's why I want to talk to you, because what I found, because I'll be honest with you, I, I left here last time, Kind of pissed, like, like why why would he well, do this to your brother? Leave here kind of pissed again, because I'm fixing to shut the door. Okay, that's fine. But I just, but can I tell you just one thing? Nope. I did attempt to get Troy to come back outside for a few seconds. Troy, I just wanted you to know that Don Watts never spoke to Jesse. Not once. Until after he was arrested. So everything he told you, that Jesse said about you, was a lie, and we have the documentation to prove it. That's what I wanted you to know. Because I don't think that it was about Shauna. I don't think that it was about the money. I think Don Watts told you you were going to prison if you didn't say that. Can I just have one more minute with you, Troy? And again, the answer was no. Troy never came back to the door. He didn't yell from inside. He didn't tell us to leave. Nothing. Just a closed door. Chris and I got back into the car and were getting ready to leave when I remembered Jesse's message. I had promised Jesse that I'd play his message to Troy. Can I sit here for a few minutes? He comes back out. A minute. I don't think he's coming out. I'll listen to that again. What it didn't. When he said, What do I have to do with it? And I said, You're the one that testified again and put him away, and he didn't do it. He said, yeah. Didn't he just say, yeah, okay? That was it. Mm-hmm. I forgot. You know what I did say that I would do for Jesse? I guess so, yeah. Hopefully we don't get shot, but I forgot. I did promise Jesse that I would do this. Yeah, well, it's on my phone. I should have had this up beforehand. The end of the episode? Mm-hmm. Troy, I'm sorry. I really do apologize. Can I have... I forgot. I promised Jesse I would play something he wanted me to play for you. Can I just have just 30, 15 seconds if you can step out and hear this and I'll walk away. But I promised him I would do this. He recorded a message for me to play for you. No? Can you come to the door and just tell me no so I know you're hearing me? I don't want to keep bothering you. I'm trying to leave, but I also made a promise. I want to make sure I did my best to try. He never did come back to the door. Chris and I returned to the car and drove away. 
the entire exchange lasted less than three minutes from beginning to end. As we drove away, I kept replaying the 35 seconds that Troy and I were face to face over and over in my mind. Could I have approached the situation differently? Would it have made a difference? Based on Troy's demeanor when he answered the door, I don't think that there was any way that that conversation was going to end pleasantly. Chris and I made it about five miles down the road before I had an idea. I could mail Troy a copy of Jesse's message. Unfortunately, neither of us had noticed whether or not the Eldridges had a mailbox. We decided to make a quick U-turn and drive past the house again to see if there was a mailbox out front. We never did make it back to the house, though. As we rounded the corner to Troy's street, we saw a squad car parked in the front of the Eldridge's house. Now, Troy has my name and phone number. I never did hear from the police, but I kind of wish that I had. I'm really curious about what Troy had to say to them. The bottom line is that I'm done with Troy. He's not going to talk to me, and I have no confidence he will ever tell the truth, even if he did. At this point, Troy has been passed on to the Conviction Integrity Unit. Any further interviews will be conducted by their investigators. And to be honest, I could really care less about Troy. He's a known liar, which means we can never really trust anything that he says. We need to talk to a witness that we can trust. Someone with no motive to lie. We need to speak to the witness that was right there by Troy's side during all of this. This is a voicemail that I received last week right before I left for Dallas. Hello, my name is Shauna Couples. I am the one that you're mentioned in your podcast. Just wanted to tell you thank you for doing this story. I've, I've always thought down deep in my heart that he was not guilty. Anyway, I just wanted to call in and let you know that I was listening and I'm thankful that you're doing this and hopefully we can find Miss Hill's murderer and get Jesse released. If you'd like to give me a call back, my number is... Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. All music for the show was created and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also does our mixing and mastering. I also want to thank Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller for transcribing the podcast every week. And a big thanks to Chris Brinkley from SylviaConsultants.com for not only creating and maintaining our website, but also being my fill-in Mike whenever I'm in town and Mike isn't with me. And also, I want to remind everyone that Mike and I will be at CrimeCon in Indianapolis on June 9th and 10th. And if you're interested in attending the conference and would like to meet me and Mike there, you can get 20% off your tickets by using promo code TRUTHJUSTICE20. That's CrimeCon on June 9th and 10th in Indianapolis, Indiana. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Get involved in the discussions in the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page on Facebook page. You can like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.